Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 82. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on August 4th, 2022, in a secure, undisclosed location near Tupper Lake, New York. Today's actually my brother's birthday, so give him a shout out. I'm spending two weeks with him this summer, and that hasn't happened in a long time. It's awesome. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Okay, the summer being what it is, this episode is apparently following the last by close to two weeks, longer than I like, but I had a good reason. My wife and I just spent more than a week road tripping around New England, and while we had an awesome time and saw a lot of history and ate some lobster rolls... I did not get any writing done. We started in Princeton, New Jersey for obscure reasons mostly involving business in Philly and spent nights in New Bedford, Massachusetts, Boston, Portland, Maine, Lubbock, Maine, that would be the easternmost town in the United States, Whitefield, New Hampshire, and Burlington, Vermont. Almost 1,200 miles along, we landed near Tupper Lake, New York this past Saturday afternoon and we'll be here with the family for another week yet. We did some history fun along the way, balanced by just plain old fun. In New Bedford, we spent a good couple of hours in the Whaling Museum on the recommendation of a cousin. And on the way to Boston, we stopped for an afternoon at the recreation of Plymouth Patuxet, which is a couple of miles from the original location. Both are worth your time. In Boston, we walked most of the Freedom Trail, only to find that the Bunker Hill Monument was closed for entirely unclear reasons. We enjoyed walking around Portland, but apart from inspecting a few historical markers, we spent most of our time hunting for breweries and dive bars. In Lubbock, our hotel was right on the Narrows across from New Brunswick, allowing me to gaze on the waters sailed by Samuel de Champlain in 1604 as he traveled to and from St. Croix Island. We also went to the Visitor Center at St. Croix Island, which is on the bank of the St. Croix River, also worth your time if you happen to be up there. Long-standing and attentive listeners can imagine how cool I thought all of that was. And then I got to do it again in Burlington. Our hotel was right on Lake Champlain, so we could see the waters over which Champlain sailed in 1609 when, with his Algonquin allies, he went to war with a Mohawk at Ticonderoga. In fact, I'm writing this paragraph anyway on July 30th, 2022, the exact 413th anniversary of that very battle. A number of listeners following on Twitter got in touch and suggested meeting up in person. That sounds like great fun on a future trip, but this trip was pretty rushed, and in, in any case, my wife and I decided to reserve our evenings for ourselves, so next time. That said, I will be in the Adirondacks for another week, roughly in range of the triangle formed by Tupper Lake, Lake Placid, and Blue Mountain Lake until August 12th. So if any of you happen to be here or are passing through and want to grab a beer, send me a note over the website or at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com and we can see if we can get the stars aligned. I also want to thank everyone for the nice emails and direct messages over Twitter. We're reaching the point where some people have strong feelings on the things we're talking about, and that's great. As I've mentioned before, as we move from subjects that most people don't know a ton about, and like, you know, random Spanish explorers in the early 1500s, to the really famous moments in American history. 
more people will notice when I get something wrong and even more will think that perhaps I've emphasized something too much or too little. Since I started this to learn American history in detail myself, I'm up for any of that back and forth as long as we keep it civil, which so far everybody has. It is the morning of Saturday, November 11th, 1620, according to the old-style Julian calendar in use by the English until 1752. November 21st, according to the Gregorian calendar we use today. As has been the general rule on this podcast, we will use the dates as recorded by the participants unless the conversion makes some big difference. It's a cold, crisp, late autumn afternoon in the harbor of today's Provincetown, where the Mayflower is anchored, and the passengers are eager to get off the ship, even though they have no authority to settle in New England. They have in their hold the parts of a 35-foot shallop, but it would take some weeks for the ship's carpenters to assemble it and repair parts that had been damaged on the voyage across. Until then, they had a big rowboat. Sixteen armed men climbed in and they rowed toward shore, whereupon, according to Bradford, quote, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. The 16 pilgrims of the away team wandered over the dunes and recorded that in the hollows between them grew birch, holly, ash, walnut, and red cedar. This was good news, because the Mayflower had run out of firewood along the way. The pilgrims cut some red cedar for firewood to bring back, marveling at its sweet smell. For the first time in a while, they would enjoy a warm fire and food cooked over it but they did not see any people. The next day was Sunday, no work or play allowed, so the pilgrims stayed aboard the ship. They were so desperate to leave and worshipped God. The next day, the carpenters began work on the shallop, and the women came ashore to wash clothes in a nearby freshwater pond. Nathaniel Philbrook tells us that for generations to come, Monday would be wash day in New England, a tradition that began with the women of the Mayflower. Regardless, chilly as it was on this November morning to be washing clothes in a pond in Provincetown, the temperature was probably somewhere in the 40s. The women must have been delighted to be off the ship, even if only for a few hours. As it would turn out, it would be months before some of them would be off the ship for good. It was, obviously, almost exactly the wrong time of year to arrive in New England. Winter was coming. The Massachusetts winter is no picnic even today with all our modern conveniences. But in the early 17th century, the winters were generally colder and longer than they have been in recent years. The pilgrims needed to find a place to settle as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, they had no useful guidance insofar as they had planned to land at the mouth of the Hudson. There, they would have benefited from the knowledge of the Dutch and English forays into the region since Hudson's voyage of 1609. At Cape Cod, they were not in literally uncharted territory insofar as they had Smith's map of the coast. But as a practical matter, they had no idea where the best places to settle were. Where could they find a safe anchorage close to shore? A good supply of running fresh water, trees for construction and export, 
soil suitable for crops and fish and game to get them through the winter. Provincetown failed on several fronts, including the extensive shallows, which kept the Mayflower a long way from shore. No running water, notwithstanding the pond. And sandy soil, it would not have been good for farming. They had spotted what looked like a river some miles down the interior coast of Cape Cod the morning they'd sailed into Provincetown. Perhaps that would be a good place to settle. On November 15th, a party of 16 armed men including Miles Standish, William Bradford, and Stephen Hopkins, were rowed ashore, or close to it. The boat ran aground in the shallow water more than once, and eventually the men got out and walked through the shallows in that cold northern Atlantic water. Standish marched them down the beach, single file, toward the river. So began the first of three expeditions of the Cape in search of a good place to settle. Each in some ways shaped the famous outcome, so we'll spend some time with them. Before we get to Standish and his file of trudging pilgrims, let's review the local tribes and their attitude toward the English in the fall of 1620. All of this will be familiar to long-standing listeners with crystalline memory, but if you are hearing this cold without having listened to the various prerequisites, a brief preview wouldn't hurt. Regarding the arrival of the pilgrims, the two most important things to know about the Indians in the region of Cape Cod in 1620 is that they were very familiar with Europeans, and the English in particular, and that there were far fewer of those Indians along the coast than there'd been only five or six years before. Europeans had been fishing along the coast of New England for at least a hundred years before the pilgrims showed up. Recall that Giovanni de Verrazzano, sailing in 1524, encountered Abenaki Indians along the coast of Maine who had already dealt with Europeans. Sometimes those fishermen would wreck their boats and be stranded or put a crewman ashore for malfeasance. In a few cases, Europeans and even Africans would end up living with Indians. Recall the story of Matuta Costa, the African who somehow had learned Algonquin, probably from having spent time with Indians in maritime Canada, whom Champlain recruited for his expedition of 1608. In the 20 or so years preceding the sailing of the Mayflower, the French and the English started exploring the coast in earnest and getting into fights with the various tribes of the Donland. Bartholomew Gosnold explored and named Martha's Vineyard and settled for a time in the Elizabeth Islands in 1602. Martin Pring and his very scary mastiffs, fool and gallant, were on the coast of Maine and Cape Cod the next year. Samuel de Champlain came down the coast three times in 1604, 5, and 6, and George Weymouth kidnapped five Indians from Maine in 1605. The Hawk Popham colony had survived a year at the mouth of the Kennebec River in 1607-08. Then John Smith and Thomas Hunt explored the coast in 1614 with the nefarious Hunt kidnapping 26 Indians from Patuxet and Cape Cod with the purpose of selling them in the slave markets of Spain. One of those 26, Tisquantum, would return to the area the year before with Englishman Thomas Dermer. Almost all of these incursions, and others, devolved from trading into fighting of some sort between the Europeans and the locals. This pattern was well enough established by 1607 that some historians attribute the failure of the Popham colony in 1608 to previously spoiled relations with the Indians. 
As very attentive listeners know, I'm not persuaded of that particular point, but it is beyond dispute that by 1620, the tribes along the coast of New England were comprehensively hostile to Europeans and especially the English. However, there were far fewer Indians along the coast in 1620 than had been there as recently as 1614 when John Smith and Thomas Hunt made their fateful voyage. In the five years between Tisquantum's departure and his return, an Eastern European disease ripped through the tribes along the New England coast, in some cases wiping out entire villages. Some tribes lost 80 to 90 percent of their population. That put them at a huge disadvantage compared to tribes only a bit to the west, which somehow escaped the epidemic. The Wampanoag tribal group, which had dominated the Cape and the coast of Massachusetts and suffered catastrophically, but their long-standing competitors to the west, the Narragansett, had not. This put the Wampanoag, led by a wise and wily sachem named Massasoit, in a bind. He had ample reason to distrust and fear the English, but he was outnumbered by the Narragansett, who had been pressuring the Wampanoag for years. Massasoit needed to choose between the Pilgrim's Rock or the Narragansett Hard Place. At the time the Mayflower landed, Massasoit lived about 60 miles west by southwest of Provincetown, roughly in today's Warren, Rhode Island. In Philbrick's words, quote, he was in the prime of his life, about 35, strong and imposing, with a quiet dignity that was expected of a sachem. To Squantum, Squanto, to those of us of a certain age, lived nearby, having returned to the mainland from Martha's Vineyard in the years since his capture there by Epinau on his return to New England with Thomas Dermer. Long-standing and attentive listeners know that story, and you can go back to the Road to Plymouth Part 3, kidnapped, if you need a refresher. Massasoit did not entirely trust his quantum, just as Epineau hadn't. They were concerned that he had, from their perspective, gone native during his time with the English. But Massasoit knew a strategic asset when he saw one, so he kept his quantum close without necessarily letting him entirely into his confidence. And Tisquantum was not the only Indian at Massasoit's disposal who knew something of the English. There was an Abenaki man named Samoset, down from the coast of Maine, who had learned some English from trading. It would also be safe to say that Massasoit's dependent tribes would keep him informed. In all likelihood, the Nosset on Cape Cod had seen the Mayflower drop anchor in Provincetown Harbor. Massasoit probably learned of it within a few days perhaps even by November 15th. So having only the vaguest sense of any of this, Miles Standish, William Bradford, Stephen Hopkins, and 13 other pilgrims marched single file down the chilly beach. Each man carried his own provisions, wore some armor, and bore a sword and a musket, not a light load for men who had been crammed on board a ship for three months with no real opportunity for exercise. No doubt the exertion tired them quickly, even as exercise warmed them against the cold air blowing on their pants, which would have been wet from having to wade ashore. Within a mile, they spotted five or six men and a dog by the water's edge. At first, the pilgrims thought they might have been Master Jones and some of the sailors who had gone ashore with their spaniel a few hours before. 
But then the men darted into the woods, whistling for the dog to follow. These were men of the Nosset tribe. The pilgrims pursued them at a trot, hoping to make contact. But as you might imagine, they stood no chance of catching the fleeing and fleet Indians. That day they tracked them perhaps seven miles before making camp for the night around a large fire. They were already getting thirsty as they had brought no water from the ship to drink, assuming perhaps that it would be plentiful on shore. It was not. All the water they'd encountered was brackish. The next morning they resumed tracking the Nosset, both to make contact and, one might imagine, because the Nosset, who would need to hydrate themselves, as we might say today, would lead them to fresh water one way or another. By midday on the 16th, they were in luck. At the foot of a small hill, they found a spring, today known as Pilgrim Spring, and in their own account, quote, drunk our first New England water with as much delight as we ever drunk drink in all our lives. Listener Adam Page sent me some pictures of the plaque erected at Pilgrim Spring and the shoreline in the area for those of you who have never been to Provincetown. I'll put them up on the website and put a link in the show notes. Thank you, Adam. Thusly refreshed, our intrepid pilgrims trudged back to the shoreline where they could see Mayflower just four miles away. There they built another fire to signal their well-being and made camp for the night. November 17th brought excitement. They came across cleared fields and then a gravesite, of which there must have been many in the region after the epidemic. The mounds were covered with reed mats. They dug into them not knowing what to expect, but when they realized they were graves, they covered them back up, deciding that it would be, quote, odious unto the Indians to ransack their sepulchers. Continuing south, they found evidence that Europeans had been there, including sawed planks and a ship's iron kettle. There had been a French shipwreck along that shore in 1615, some scholars wonder if it had been the sailors from that wreck who spread the disease that killed so many along the coast. And the pilgrims may have stumbled upon evidence of it. Then they found the ruins of Martin Pring's Fort from 1603 near the mouth of the Pamet River in Truro. Then the pilgrims hit Pater, which in their circumstance was not gold, but baskets of stored maize. Now, the pilgrims were quite unlike the English who had settled in Jamestown, at least insofar as they worried about the spiritual implications of obvious violations of the Ten Commandments. But they were close to desperate, in that the stored food on the Mayflower, already depleted by the longer-than-expected journey, was running low, and winter was coming. After deliberating, they decided to steal the corn, only after promising themselves, anyway, that they would repay the people who owned it in due course. This they would actually do, eventually. They poured as much of it as they could into a kettle, perhaps the French kettle that they had found, and cut a staff to suspend the kettle so that two men in shifts could carry it back to the ship. After one more wet night on land, they returned to the Mayflower on November 18th, 1620. By Monday, November 27th, which would have been a cold December 7th in our modern calendar, the shallop was assembled and repaired to good order. 
Master Jones led an expedition of 34 men, 24 pilgrims and 10 sailors, south again in search of a settlement site. The wind was all wrong, and the shallop took a day to clear the point behind which the Mayflower anchored. That night, the temperature fell well below freezing, and their wet shoes and clothes froze. Bradford would later write that, quote, some of our people that are dead took the original of their death here. Six inches of snow fell that night. By the time they had sailed back to the mouth of the Pamet River in Truro, they were very cold. They put ashore and spent the 28th marching up and down the hills in the snow, assessing whether the area would be suitable for settlement. They shot six ducks and three geese and made an early camp under big pine trees. The next morning, they went looking for Corn Hill, where they'd found the first cache of maize. They searched through the drifting snow and found not only the remains of the original store of maize, but another ten bushels. With several of the men too sick to carry on, Master Jones resolved to take the shallop, the maize, and the sickest men back to Mayflower, and he would return the next day for the rest of them, leaving Standish in charge. Standish marched them around as he was wont to do, and they came across another grave. This time the group resolved the moral conundrum differently and opened it up. Now let's go to Philbrick's description, quote, They found several additional boards and mats of woven grass. One of the boards was finely carved and painted with three tines on the top, like a crown. This may have been a carving of Poseidon's trident, suggesting that the board originally came from a ship, most probably the French ship that had wrecked in 1615. Farther down, they found a new mat wrapped around two bundles, one large and one small. They opened the larger bundle first. The contents were covered with a fine, sweet-smelling reddish powder, red ochre, used by the Indians as both a pigment and an embalmment. Along with some bones, they found the skull of a man with fine yellow hair still on it and some of the flesh unconsumed. But the skull was a sailor's canvas bag containing a knife and sewing needle. Then they turned to the smaller bundle. Inside were the skull and bones of a small child along with a tiny wooden bow. Back to me, Philbrick wonders whether this European sailor had lived with the Indians and had had a son with one of them and was buried in honor. Or maybe they had been killed by Indians and buried in triumph. Hard to know. Regardless, this would be the pilgrims' first direct evidence that the locals were familiar with Europeans. Later that day, they found an Indian village that had only recently been abandoned. Edward Winslow and William Bradford, writing in their short book, Mort's Relation, a journal of the pilgrims at Plymouth, described the houses in detail, quote, The houses were made with young sapling trees, bended, and both ends stuck into the ground. They were made round, like unto an arbor, and covered down to the ground with thick and well-wrought mats, and the door was not over a yard high, made of a mat to open. The chimney was a wide-open hole in the top, for which they had a mat to cover it closed when they pleased. One might stand and go upright in them. 
In the midst of them, there were four little tranches knocked into the ground and small sticks laid over on which they hung their pots and what they had to seethe. Round about the fire, they lay on mats, which are their beds. The houses were double matted, for as they were matted without, so they were within with newer and fairer mats. In the houses, we found wooden bowls, trays, and dishes, earthen pots, hand baskets made of crab shells wrought together. Also, an English pail or bucket with two iron ears. There was also baskets of sundry sorts, bigger and some lesser, finer and some coarser. Some were curiously wrought with black and white and pretty works and sundry other of their household stuff. We found also two or three deer's heads, one whereof had been newly killed, for it was still fresh. There was also a company of deer's feet stuck up in the houses, heart's horns and eagle's claws and sundry such like things there was. Also two or three baskets of parched acorns, pieces of fish, and a piece of broiled herring. We found also a little silk grass and a little tobacco seed with some other seeds which we knew not. Without was sundry bundles of flags and sedge, bulrushes, and other stuff to make mats. There was thrust into a hollow tree two or three pieces of venison, but we thought it fitter for the dogs than for us. Some of the best things we took away with us and left the houses standing as they were. So it growing towards night and the tide almost spent, we hastened with our things down to the shallop and got aboard that night, intending to have brought some beads and other things to have left in the houses in sign of peace and that we meant to truck with them. But it was not done by means of our hasty coming away from Cape Cod. But so soon as we can meet conveniently with them, we will give them full satisfaction. Back to me. With all the many European expeditions into North America since Verrazano in 1524, it took most of a century for these two separatists to write the most detailed description we have of Indian dwellings in those early years, matched only by the paintings and observations of John White and Thomas Harriet at Roanoke. In its almost anthropological tone, this passage from Mort's Relation rivals the relation of Cabeza de Vaca from the 1540s, although even that storied Spaniard did not say as much about the actual dwellings of the tribes he and his fellow survivors saw in South Texas 80 years before. On their return, now November 30th, they learned some good news. Susanna White, wife of William, had given birth to a son whom they named Peregrine, Peregrine was certainly the first child of two English parents in New England, and the first of even one English parent whom we know of. There is, of course, the possibility that unnamed English sailors had been taken in by Indians along that coast over the preceding century and had fathered children with Indian mothers, as perhaps that dead French sailor had done. But Peregrine White is the first whose name and existence are certain. He would live almost 86 years, dying on July 20th, 1704, an astonishingly long life under the circumstances. The Truro area might have been a place for the pilgrims to settle, and its discovery set off a debate among them, which Winslow and Bradford describe in Mort's relation. Those in favor of settling there were especially concerned with the descent of winter, 
and sighted the convenient harbor, good for boats, though too shallow for ships, the obvious capacity of the area to grow crops, the large supply of birds and fish, and the apparent defensibility of the terrain. Those who argued for continuing the search for a different location were most concerned about the poor supply of fresh water. They had found no streams that weren't brackish, only ponds, and they were worried that those would dry up in the summer. Also, such water as there was would have to be schlepped from the ponds in a steep hill, which would be arduous. Finally, but perhaps most importantly, the pilot and others argued in favor of reports of better sites along the main coast of today's Massachusetts. They'd heard of a good harbor and clean river in the area of Ipswich, and they knew something of the terrain around Boston. It was decided to venture one more exploration along the shore, but agreed to look no farther north than the Boston Harbor. Now let's go back to Philbrick, quote, The shallop set out on Wednesday, December 6th. The Mayflower's two pilots, Robert Coppin and John Clark, had replaced Master Jones and were accompanied by the Master Gunner and three sailors. The Pilgrims were represented by Bradford, Carver, Standish, Winslow, John Tilly and his brother Edward, John Howland, Richard Warren, Stephen Hopkins, and Hopkins' servant Edward Doty, less than half the number of the previous expedition. Illness and freezing temperatures, it was now in the low 20s, if not colder, had already taken a considerable toll. Almost as soon as they set sail, the salt spray froze on their coats, as if they had been glazed, Bradford wrote. They sailed south into Wellfleet Bay, about 15 miles beyond Truro, where they'd been on the previous expedition. On the shore, they saw a dozen or so Indians working around a large, dark object that they later discovered was a pilot whale, a small, bulbous-headed black whale around 20 feet long. The Indians were cutting the whale's blubber into long strips when they saw the shallop approaching and fled. Back to me. The men went ashore and built a fire in a barricade. That night, they saw the smoke from a fire a few miles away, so they kept watch. The next day, they searched for a suitable settlement site on foot and in the shallop and spent the night of December 7th camped at the mouth of the Herring River, again with a small circular barricade of tree trunks and branches. And again, they posted sentries. Early the next morning, the Indians attacked. Back to Philbrick, quote, One of the men burst out of the trees and came running for the barricade, screaming, They are men, Indians, Indians. Suddenly the air was filled with arrows. Every man reached for his gun. Instead of a matchlock, Miles Standish possessed a snaplock, a predecessor to the flintlock, and immediately fired off a round. The others dipped their matches into the embers of the fire, and with their matches lit, began to blast away. Standish ordered them, quote, not to shoot till we could take aim. He didn't know how many of the Indians were out there in the woods, and they might need every shot. In the meantime, those who had left their muskets beside the shallop sprinted back to retrieve them. The Indians soon had them trapped behind the boat. Standish and those guarding the entrance to the barricade called out to make sure they were unhurt. Well, well, everyone, they shouted, be of good courage. Three of them at the boat fired their muskets. 
but the others were without a way to light their matches and cried out for a firebrand. One of the men in the barricade picked up a burning log from the fire and ran with it to the shallop, an act of bravery that, according to Bradford, did not a little discourage our enemies. Back to me. In the event, the Indians kept up the attack, led by an aggressive, quote, captain in English terms. The defenders concentrated their fire at the tree he used as cover, and he'd pop around it to shoot arrows. Eventually, he fled, triggering a full-blown retreat. The English suffered no casualties, even though arrows stuck out of the barricade, bounced off the shallop, and riddled clothes they had hung dry. They pursued the retreating Indians for half a mile, mostly to make a show of it. The accounts do not describe any Indian casualties either. So as scary as the fight must have seemed, it was apparently bloodless on both sides. Also notice that these Nauset Indians were not terrified by firearms as others had been on their first encounter with them. Remember the Mohawk at Ticonderoga in 1609, for example. More evidence that the locals were quite familiar with Europeans. Anyway, the site of this encounter is today known as First Encounter Beach in Eastham, and you can find it on Google Maps if you're interested. On the 8th, the shallop sailed the southern shore of Cape Cod with a good wind from the southeast. Then they turned north toward today's Plymouth. The weather grew ugly, the wind picked up, the sea got rough, and the temperature fell. A few miles south of Plymouth, a wave broke the shallop's rudder. Two men grabbed oars and stood at the stern, manipulating the oars to gain some control over the ship's direction. It continued up the coast. Then at nightfall, the mainsail mast shattered from the pressure of the wind, breaking into three parts. Now the men had to row through the monstrous waves in the presumed direction of land, aided by a flood tide. Then suddenly a waved-crashed beach appeared in the darkness. This was Saquish Head. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. S-A-Q-U-I-S-H, which you can also easily find on Google Maps. They avoided being run ashore and made it around the end of the point, putting them on the lee side of a wooded coast. They debated whether to land and risk Indian attack or stay on the boat but the rapidly falling temperature persuaded them that to survive they needed to build a fire. They landed and soon warmed themselves by their roaring blaze. The dawn on Saturday, December 9th revealed fair weather and that they were on a small island safe from Indian attack. Since John Clark was the first to set foot on the island, it has been known since as Clark's Island, and it's a bit more than three miles from today's Plymouth. They spent Saturday on the island cutting and fitting a new mass for the shallop and drying off their clothes. And Sunday was the Sabbath, so they prayed and didn't do any work or have any fun. On Monday the 11th, they sounded the harbor and found it suitable for ships, and they ventured onto the land at the base of a hill. There, per Mort's relation, they found, quote, diverse cornfields and little running brooks, a place very good for situation. So we returned to our ship again with good news to the rest of our people, which did much to comfort their hearts. They were at Tisquantum's village, Patuxet.
once home to perhaps 2,000 people and had seen no people there. Having found a site with a defensible hill, a deep harbor, running water, cleared fields, and no evidence that Indians currently live there, they declared their mission accomplished and sailed the 25 miles across the bay to Provincetown Harbor and the Mayflower, arriving the evening of December 12th. It was then that William Bradford learned that his wife of seven years, Dorothy May Bradford, had slipped over the side and drowned just after their departure. Bradford never wrote about his wife's death. Some historians have interpreted that reticence as shame, suggesting that Dorothy Bradford had committed suicide. Well, maybe she did. Having left her only child in Holland and endured the desolate North Atlantic, only to spend still more weeks on board ship in far colder weather than any of them had anticipated, with now disease and new death knocking on the door, it's easy to imagine her despair. That her slipping overboard occurred just after her husband left for a week is at least a little suspicious. But it also may well have been an accident. We shall never know. Regardless, it must have been a terrible blow to Bradford. This is a good place to stop. Next time, unless my muse gets the better of me, we'll follow the Mayflower across Cape Cod Bay to Patuxet, Plymouth, and that first terribly difficult winter. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell your worthiest friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>